Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Any influence out there doesn't just happen. It is often engineered. It's just that sometimes it's engineered across generations, right? And so we don't always see the moving parts. That's sort of where the idea came from, that I was like, okay, what does it take? really, to create a brand that you have no choice but to pay attention to, despite what's happening in the environment around you, right? And that's part of the reason that behavioral science comes into this, right? Because behavioral science is really sort of the study of context, right? We have a given environment. How do we facilitate a change in behavior given that environment? And so when it comes to visibility and and generating further influence and all of these things, right? What we have is a given environment, aka the attention economy is super, super, super noisy and crowded, right? And we have a change in behavior that we would like to see. So how do we facilitate those things? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Chloe, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Srini. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you by way of our mutual friend, Nikki Groom. And when anybody who is a former guest refers somebody, I almost always say yes. <laughs> um, so I'm really thrilled to have you here. But before we get into your work, I mm. wanted to start by asking you, where in the world were you born and raised? And how did that end up impacting what you've ended up doing with your life and career? Yeah, this is such a good question. Um, so I was born in California, in Southern California. Um, but I was raised in a few different places. Um, I think the place that I lived the longest as a kid was Connecticut, where I'm currently located. Um, and I was raised by Nigerian parents. So my parents weren't citizens when I was born. Um, and it's, it's, you know, one of those classic stories where like at school, you're American and at home, it's like a completely different world. So, um, so that's like where I was born and sort of raised in the whole deal. To how it affects it, to how it affects my work. That's a good question. 
I think I would say that I am used to being on multiple sides of like the visibility issue, if that makes sense, right? I'm used to being hyper visible because I'm almost always, especially when I was growing up, an only. But I'm also used to being unseen or unrecognized or however you want to put that. It's it's like this weird combination of being of being hyper visible and unseen at the same time. And so that's an experience that I think is not unique to me, but I I think is also something that rubbed me raw and like filled me with an almost like holy discontent and like was not something that I could let go. And I think it's only in hindsight that I realize that is sort of what what has been going on with me um, and that I can trace it back that far. But yeah, yeah, I think that I think that that that's what I would say to that question. Yeah. Well, you mentioned this idea of being American at school and Nigerian at home and I can wonder, like, for you, what that experience was of, like, blending these two identities while also trying to be part of, you know, the country that your parents are from. Because I can relate to that. That was my experience entirely. So I'm so curious. What was that like for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, it depends on what phase of my life we're talking about. But I think at the start, it was really... um, I think at the start, it felt easy and then it got harder over time. And I think that's honestly because at the start, it it didn't even occur to me that I wanted to share the culture that was at home outside, right? And so it was very easy for me to sort of be like, who I was outside in the American world and then come home and be like, cool, this is... This is home life. This is family. And I think that as I grew and it became harder to keep those parts of my life separate, that's then when I started to struggle. And it created a lot of frustration for me. Like I remember, I remember in, I want to say like maybe it was like middle school or high school or something. I think, excuse me. I, um, I just started learning how to like draw human bodies, right? Like this, I was like in an art class or elective or something. And my teacher at the time, who is just the loveliest man, I still know him today, saw my style, which was like very much in the style of the stuff that I read at the time, which was like lots of like, manga and anime you know, like just that kind of thing and so it was like very much in like that comic book style saw that style and was like so permissive of it but then started like suggesting like what if you drew characters who looked more like you and you know had different you know proportions and different skin tones and things like that and I remember that that started happening a lot more often um, not just in drawing, but in singing and like everywhere that I was sort of expressing myself. 
that people sort of knew that I was different and were like, you should probably be expressing some of that. And at the time, it was always so frustrating to me because I was like, why? Like, I don't really need to, right? Like, what's what's the purpose of doing that here? Um, I think it was only when, when I got older and I started realizing where some of that desire to keep my culture sort of inside and at home and frankly safe came from that I started realizing, oh, okay, um, this is probably not a great thing. <laughs> this is probably not a great thing that my culture is something obviously to be celebrated and to be loved. And there's there are some frankly sus stuff <laughs> attached to my wanting to not express that part of myself. Um, and so, but it took a long time for me to get to that point. Um, yeah, it took a long time for me to get to that point. And so that that intermediary period was just one of real frustration. And then add to that the fact that my my parents and my grandparents and aunts and uncles, of which there are many, <laughs> of course, um, started including me and my siblings more in sort of political discourse about Nigeria. And like we would, you know, regularly go back and forth between the states and Nigeria and um, just the way that they started impressing upon us the importance of our roots and all of those things, right? So like it, it just, it became a really frustrating, difficult balancing act because it felt like I couldn't keep anybody happy. And, and that like nothing would stay in the right place. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but that's what comes to mind. But just imagine myself as a younger person trying to juggle all of these different um, incentives and interests. And, and it was only really like post-college, I think. Like I graduated from college and I was like, hold on, I shouldn't have to be juggling these things. Like these worlds can and probably should bleed into each other. and why was I so hesitant to do that? What am I picking up on around me that is making me hesitant to do that? And so began a really deep investigation into why. So, Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I don't know if that's like the perspective. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it actually, it raises a lot more questions. And part of the, the reason I asked the question was because I, I think that you and I can relate in that way. Uh, I was actually just writing about sort of, you know, these three sets of values that we all kind of are shaped by, which are, you know, cultural, social and personal values. And usually the first two uh, basically get in the way of the third, you know, the third, uh, because the third we often discover and we realize they're in conflict with the previous two. Mm -hmm. And so like, I don't know about you, like when we would go to India as a kid, I, my mom would be like, we're going to India for summer vacation. I was like, this is not a vacation. It's a punishment. (laughs) And because I don't know about like you, because my parents would go for three, four months at a time because they wouldn't go that often. And I realize now why that is, because like they were seeing their parents after four years. Like if I saw my parents after four years, I would stay for three months too. Yeah. Um, But like, I wonder for you, like one, when you go back to Nigeria, like now as an adult versus as a kid, do you, is your perception of it different? Because I remember when I would go to India as a kid, I hate this. Like every time we'd come here, now, I remember I told my dad I will, even in 2007, I went, I was like, I'll never spend my own money to go there. 
they made me go because they're like, okay, you're in business school and we know you won't go or won't have time to go. Mm. And then we went in 2018 for my sister's wedding. And that time I went on a surf trip and literally I was back there six months later. And I thought to myself, wow, this is crazy how much my perception of, of my own country has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, a thousand percent. I can say that this is exactly what happened for me. Um, that as a kid, like, <laughs> I don't know if this happened to you, but um, Nigerian parents would make this threat um, if you were like misbehaving, which is like rare. But like if you were a misbehaving Nigerian kid, often you got the threat that like they would send you back to Nigeria to like go to school there. <laughs> right. <laughs> like That was the threat. And like immediately pulled everybody back in line. In fact, I only know one like cousin who that actually happened to. And he straightened right up, like straightened right up immediately. Um, when he was back from Nigeria, completely changed person. And so yeah. that was the threat. And so, yeah, absolutely that feeling as like a younger person. My brothers and I actually laugh about this now today where we would go, like we would hear, okay, like it's the summer is Nigeria, right? And we'd be like, Oh, like, oh my God, are you just like, why, why do this to us? Right. Um, absolutely mm-hmm. felt like torture, especially since like we weren't even staying in like the city, like Lagos. Um, yeah. Cause our family is like Southern from Southern Nigeria. No, like we were going into like the village proper. So like this was, <laughs> <laughs> this was like, like electricity was not like, there's this common phrase, like Nepa took the light. Where just like the, um, the National Agency for Energy would just take the, like, take light occasionally. And by occasionally, I mean like at least once a day. And so mm-hmm. like you would have to have generators. And that meant just like the AC would be down, no lights, like what, like television, ha ha ha, like bold of you to assume. Um, don't even think about like <laughs> trying to, trying to get anything done except for what you can get done like in a journal or something. Right. So like you just have to use your imagination. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was like the worst of all possible times as a kid. And then I remember when it switched for me was after undergrad, my cousin, excuse me, who lives in Nigeria, invited me to just kind of come and stay with her and her mom. And they lived in Lagos and like, they lived this very like chic lifestyle. She was like in the fashion industry as like a consultant and like she got me a position at a women's magazine um that I think started off as like an intern and then I just sort of like raised through the ranks really quickly um and so I lived in Nigeria for some time after undergrad before going to grad school and my perspective on Nigeria completely changed I like First of all, Nigeria is stylish as hell. Excuse me. Can I, can I curse on yeah. this podcast? <laughs> um, it is super stylish. Um, so much fun. Like the people are fun. The, the events are fun. Like, and yes, there is a lot of issues in Nigeria that frustrate me today as an adult, but like they frustrate me from the perspective of there's so much potential and there's so much that, um, that can be done here. Um, but yeah, my perspective has completely changed. And like, yeah, now absolutely I will spend my own money to go to Nigeria on the regular because it's actually great. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, absolutely. I can really, this is a question that I'm morbid curious. About. What is a Nigerian wedding like? <laughs> um, Probably exactly what you imagine it, it to be. Like an Indian I, wedding? Yes, exactly. Yes. 
I was going to say, I'm like, it's probably like, it's like an Indian wedding. So, um, so there, if, if you want to like simplify a Nigerian wedding, um, the pieces of it will be like a traditional wedding or like a wine carrying. And then there'll be like the, the white wedding air quotes or like the, the, um, you know, the church wedding essentially. And then. And I'm guessing nobody is interested in simplifying it because nobody in India would simplify no, an Indian wedding. Nobody simplifies a thing. And like, I'm telling you now that when slash if I get married, my wedding, like, I won't be able to have less than 500 people. Yeah, like, that's I made a list. Bare minimum. Yeah. Like, I made a I, list of, of all my relatives alone. And I remember telling my cousin, I was like, well, I'm like, given how late it is in my life, I'm like, you, some of these people will probably be dead by then. Right. And she's like, you're <laughs> such an asshole. Like, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's, oh, no, now I feel bad. Please, I can't let anyone in my family put into this. Awesome, but like, absolutely. Yes, this. Um, like my, yeah, my like, list was a hundred just for my family alone. I was just, like, and these are people who I have to invite, like, exactly. and that I actually like. Yeah. 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 I'm not even like the, the five, that number of the 500 isn't even including like my personal friends or oh, like, yeah. like people that I, I know and actually care about. This is just like people in the family and then family like, friends, family friends and aunties I've never heard of. And yep. you know, like that and like second cousins and like, that Fourth important cousins. person, 12th cousins, that the, the governor of that province, like that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, like, jeez, yeah. Louise. So like that's, <laughs> that's, yes, it's, it's exactly as uh, lavish and extravagant as you, uh, as you are picturing. Yes, there are costumes and there are costume changes. And I say costumes in air quotes that they, the family wears what we call ashebi, which, um, I think translates to like family cloth in Yoruba, which is not the tribe I'm from. So forgive me, anyone who's listening to this. Um, and it just means that everyone uses the same cloth to make their outfit so that people know that you belong to the family that is celebrating. But like mm -hmm. the silhouettes and everything are like completely different. So like think, just imagine like, <laughs> this is really stereotypical, but imagine like the the trailer for Black Panther 2, where we saw the funeral of uh, T'Challa and like everyone's in white, but the outfits are different. That. That. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah. So what are the, the sort of, like, if, if we were to sort of stereotype Nigerian cultural values, <laughs> like, you know, uh, from the time you're, you know, growing up, like, what are they? If you could distill them to the stereotypical ones. Mm, yeah, this is a good question, too. I would say um, education is really, mm -hmm. really highly valued. Um, teachers are like doctors for us. Mm -hmm. And I, I use that parallel just because like the way that we treat teachers and education here in the States is like wildly different. And I often find that kind of heartbreaking, yeah. kind of like truly heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But education is like... Um, a must and it is expected. And so this is also why around this time of year, I am often going to uh, graduation parties that are insanely lavish <laughs> um, because we, you know, we celebrate that. Um, so education, I would say, I would also say like uh, achievement. Um, we're a very achievement oriented culture we're really focused on winning um whatever that happens to look like right 
Um, sometimes winning looks like um, being the richest person in the room. Sometimes winning looks like being the smartest person in the room. Sometimes winning looks like being the best dressed person in the room. Sometimes it's a combination of all of those things. Sometimes it's a bunch of other factors that I haven't named here, but achievement is really important and sort of hand in hand with that, like pretty stereotypical ideas of success and what that looks like. Let me see what else. Education, achievement. Um, I would say. <laughs> oh man. Um, I would say like pride, but like in a good way and a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, in a good way, like, cause like you can't tell a Nigerian anything, right? Like, like if you try to insult a Nigerian person, it's just like, are you a goat? Like what, <laughs> what is this? Right. So, like, are you, are you mad? Like wh- why, why would you say such a thing? It's clearly false, um, yeah. which is great. Right. Like that leads to very confident um, people generally. And this is again, very stereotypical. But it can also lead to like pride in the sense that you're just like, oh, no, 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 not this mm-hmm. kind of pride. Um, and I will, I won't give a, like a, a poor example of this, but I'll give sort of like the flip side example of this and say like, in the same way that you can't tell a Nigerian anything, like insulting them is like futile, but, <laughs> um, nobody insults. Or like scraps or argues verbally like a Nigerian. Like the Nigerians are devastating. <laughs> Just like honestly, some of some of the some of the things that I have heard Nigerians say to other Nigerians, like to their face, yeah. fully I felt the burn and like I was I was an innocent bystander, right? Like I had nothing, mm-hmm. to, I didn't know the people. Right. So it's just, oh, oh my gosh. Like I, okay. I will give you an example of the story. Um, I remember this was, we were in Nigeria during the height of the Ebola epidemic. And this was because we were there for a funeral. And on top of that, both of my parents are sort of medical personnel. So my, Mother was like <laughs> mothering, but also like as a doctor. And my father, who's an epidemiologist, was also like working with the the World Health Organization team on Ebola. Like he was part of the team that was working on Ebola in Africa at the time. And so, um, and so like he was sort of like in and out, right? And I remember we were flying back literally from the countryside because you have to take a plane from Lagos to where we go. Um and somebody like fell ill on the plane and oh my goodness there's so many parts of the story someone got sick on the plane and they didn't let anybody else off which like of course that makes sense and i remember i remember my mother went up to the 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 staff and they're like and she was like i i'm i'm a doctor i can i can help if you need support and this Hostess looked at my mom and was like, so, <laughs> as in what's like, and, 
And so my mom was like, okay. And she goes and sits down, right? Finally, they bring in some sort of, they, they bring in people in hazmat suits and they sort of evacuate this person um, in like a tube situation. And I see this poor older white gentleman sort of stand up and he has his phone out and he's recording this as a happening. And like the, the people in the, the seats around him turn on him and like, wow, I just start shouting. And the only, the only words that I like remember, cause it was pure, truly a cacophony was, um, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, sit down, sit down, would you do that to your own country? Sit down, you know, just like, just abusing this poor man. And so like, he sits down, like, like chastened. Meanwhile, I'm also just watching some other person who knew enough not to like stand up and like choreograph that they were filming this. And they were just sitting down and like filming between the seats because they knew better. So like, just, just Nigerians can be like, long story short, Nigerians can be devastating. Um, and this is just like the kindest example that I'm giving. I've heard some truly, truly like heinous stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I can relate. Um, <laughs> so you know, the thing that I, I wonder, uh, and you and I are probably very similar in this way. At mm. some point, I'm guessing you found that your own re- personal values conflicted with the ones that you were raised with. Yeah. Talk to me about that and how it's led to what you do and, and the role that has played in this whole idea of visibility. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So um, I think that especially with the idea of achievement, um, and I would say that this is one that I I continue to wrestle, um, but especially with the idea of achievement and success and what it's supposed to look like, this is something that I think once I started seeing the ways in which it not only stifled me, um, but in some cases, in, in some very real way, made me sick, right? Like I grew really, really ill in the pursuit of some of, um, some of these ideals, right? Um, and just getting to a point where like physically I could not uphold some of these ideas anymore. Um, I think especially with the idea of achievement, like my idea of that had to not only change, but I had to, I had to adopt a new perspective of, hmm, how would I put this? I think I had to adopt a new perspective of what it meant to be seen as successful. That's what I'll say. Um, And a lot of the things that started, I would say one of the key things that changed for me was this idea of... um, it has to be safe and it has to be fair. And that's not necessarily something that is the case when it comes to visibility, right? Especially if you're what I call an underrecognized person. So I, I had to, 
I had to learn to start putting safeguards in place so that I could remain safe myself mentally, emotionally, but also physically so that I would like continue to grow sick, ill, and get worse. Um, I had to put those safeguards in place and also realize that if, if this idea of, of achievement and like not just achievement, but like being seen to be achieving, if this thing, if this value made me sick, made me sick, me, <laughs> like emphasis on the me, um, that I wasn't, that I wasn't the only person. Um, and that might come from like a, a, maybe a too high estimation of myself and my capabilities. Who knows? Um, but I like to say that I, I think pretty well of myself. And so, and so if this was something that I was struggling with and had literally got me to the place where I was like bedridden, right? If that was happening to me, then there was going to be somebody else out there who was struggling in, if not the same way, in similar ways. Um, and so, and that's like, I think kind of how it began for me. Like, I definitely eventually realized the sort of, um, I might say condescension <laughs> inherent in, in that idea, but I was also pretty young, youngish at the time. Um, yeah. but yeah, but like that's sort of how the journey started for me of, of sort of divesting of some of the more poisonous elements of the values that I, you know, espoused and was raised with. Um, that's how it began for me that I was like, yeah. well, if I physically cannot do this thing, that means that there are other people who are struggling. So why is this happening to me? What does this mean? And I started investigating. Um, yeah. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, let's get into um, this whole idea of this visibility engineering method uh, that centers on behavioral science. Because uh, it's funny because I'm listening to you say that, I'm thinking to myself, there's kind of an odd paradox here, right? Like achievement is partially like, why do we want to stand, you know, achieve something so that we stand out, you know? And I mean, I built an entire brand around standing out like this, the entire ethos of of unmistakable. Uh, But to look at it from a behavioral science perspective, that caught my attention. So talk to me about this framework, particularly in a world of noise where, you know, it's just everybody is like a Me Too brand and like some influencer says everybody should start a podcast and before you know it, everybody and their mother has one. It's like, you know, over and over you see this like same yeah. thing. Um, and I remember, you know, I signed to Laura Belgrade. I was like, you know, I'd seen so many people come out of Marie Forleo's Beast Bowl. And I was like, how often, one of my friends sent me something like 13 different websites of potential clients of hers. And I was like, I replied back and I was like, look, I'm like, every one of these websites sounds and looks exactly the same. And I have no idea what the fuck any of these people do. So like my answer is no to <laughs> all of <you>. them. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you. No, exactly this, exactly this. So, okay, I I have a whole, I have a whole thing about this. Um, where do I even begin? So, okay, visibility engineering, right? Let me start there. Let me start with concrete stuff before I get very abstract. Visibility engineering really came from the, the idea that that the kind of influence that brands are looking to have doesn't just happen, right? And in fact, I would, I would state that any influence out there doesn't just happen. It is often engineered, right? Um, it's just that sometimes it's engineered across generations, right? And so we don't always see the moving parts or are, um, that are sort of propping that up and making it so. Um, and so, that's sort of that's sort of where the idea came from that I was like, okay, what does it take really to create a brand that you have no choice but to pay attention to, despite what's happening in the environment around you, right? And that's really where the it's part of the reason that behavioral science comes into this, right? Because Behavioral science is really sort of the study of context, right? It's the study of, um, like, we have a given environment. How do we facilitate a change in behavior given that environment, right? And so 
when it comes to visibility and, and generating further influence and all of these things, right? What we have is a given environment, aka the attention economy is super, super, duper noisy and crowded, right? Um, and we have a change in behavior that we would like to see. Um, so how do we facilitate, facilitate those things? And then add to that an extra wrinkle. And it's this idea of under recognition. And I actually have a piece in Harvard Business Review about this. So I'm sure we can include a link or something in the show notes, but just this idea that there are some of us, some people, some brands that have almost like an invisibility cloak over them, right? And cognitively in a cognitive sense, right? And as a result, they are getting less attention than their peers. Um, and so if the tools that we currently have um, around building brands, developing them, around marketing and PR and advertising and all the rest of it, if the tools that we have developed and the strategies and tactics, tactics we've developed don't account for that, those invisibility cloaks, then we're kind of in trouble, right? Like visibility doesn't work the same for everyone. And I I suppose I should rewind and sort of define some terms too, because that, yeah. that might help a little bit. So, so what I'll say is how basic do we want to, how, how basic do we want to get here, Sunni? Well, okay. So I, I was trying to think about this because like, I think there's a lot of overlap between my sort of core message and yours, yours. Um, but, but the funny thing is I think I realized like one thing that I, I'd seen even when I, I got through the unmistakable book, somebody wanted me to teach a course on this idea of how to be unmistakable. I was like, yeah, I can't do that. And like, <laughs> because if you could teach a course on it, it wouldn't be unmistakable because there's exactly. no formula to it. Yeah. And that was, I think the hardest thing about that book is to get that idea across because it was it was very abstract. Like I remember Seth Godin in Tribes, you know, he, there's a review on, on, uh, the tribes. Like if you look at the Amazon reviews where it says, the only problem with this book is Seth doesn't actually teach anybody how to get, you know, build a tribe. And I said, you know, the thing <laughs> that is genius about Seth Godin's books is that he gives people a compass, not a map. And yeah. like that is really at the core of so much of what I talked about, this idea of unmistakability. And, you know, and, you know, and I really appreciate that you brought up context. So I was trying to think about this. Like I think the best way to do this is to frame it in a very concrete example. So let's just say you have some content creator lingering in obscurity. Yeah. That would be a good way to do this and and really apply it, I think. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Sounds good. So let's say we have this, this nameless content creator. Now, if this content creator is, for example, a person of color, if they are a, a woman, some combination of those things, you know, the things that folks would consider uh, socially marginalized, maybe, right? Um, if they belong to any one or any combination of those communities, then they are also dealing with something that I call visibility biases. Um, and visibility biases are essentially the subset of cognitive biases, right? All of the shortcuts in your head. The subset of cognitive biases that talk about how we've all been conditioned to overlook certain kinds of people and experiences. 
A great example of a visibility bias is the racial attention deficit, right? And this research was able to empirically demonstrate that white Americans are 33% more likely to overlook Black peers. And that's even when they've been incentivized to pay attention to those peers. And when they know that those peers have some kind of information or knowledge that can help them with a pressing problem. So when both of those things are true, the, the deficit of attention, the way in which the attention is allocated, that gap is 33%, right? Now, for those of us who are like in the brand world, brand adjacent world, that's like brand salience, right? Like, okay, so you're telling me that this content creator, even if they have product market fit or whatever it happens to be, right? And brand salience, even if they have all of those things, they're still 33% less likely to be seen or noticed or recognized by, by, you know, white folks. Ah, that's a problem, right? So like, that's, that's like foundation, like foundational stuff, like level one, we have this issue, right? So even before getting to the, okay, how do we make this person less obscure? We have to deal with the fact that visibility biases are also playing a role here. So it's not just the the usual things in addition to that right? and all of the ways that can affect their efforts. That's the first thing, right? Then the second thing <laughs> is saying, okay, now that we know which visibility biases are involved, the ways that this is affecting you, now we can start with an analysis of how your brand is currently perceived, right? And I would like pause here and say that I know that there are lots of definitions of what a brand is out there. Mm -hmm. I will present to you a uh, definition from my perspective as someone who is um, from a behavioral science perspective, from a um, scientific perspective. Um, and it is just that a brand is a system of ideas that influences behavior of other people. Said another way, it's a kind of influential real estate in someone's head, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we are talking about analyzing how someone's brand is viewed, right? Um, what we're really trying to do is analyze what are, what's the current impression that that brand, that system of ideas is giving off. Because then we get to understand a better, we have a better understanding of the context that's in place that may or may not be contributing to the kind of behavior change that they would like to see, this content creator, right? And let's make things more concrete, right? This content creator, let's say that they are creating content because they would like to um, uh, what kind of service is a content creator? Have? Let's say they want to be able to um sell courses and have like brand deals, right? Let's say that mm -hmm. that's sort of like the, a thing, right? Um, so okay, cool. The behavior change that we are looking to see in this instance, right, is this person going mm, obscure and literally cognitively overlooked, right? Or erased, however you want to put that, underrecognized, going from that state to a state where people are recognizing them, buying their course, and inviting them to collaborations, 
right? Mm-hmm. Those are changes in behavior. And so I think, I think part of what's interesting is that often we don't see our work in the field of branding, marketing, all of that. We don't see our work as facilitating behavior change often because this layer of under-recognition isn't present, right? So we just think about it as, okay, like we just got to get people to buy, right? Mm -hmm. But when we realize, oh, we got to get people to buy despite the fact that cognitively they've been conditioned not to see this person, that's when you're like, "Mm, some behavior stuff has to change here. And that's why that behavior change element is so obvious to me, whereas it might not be as obvious in other situations. So, so... Analysis of impression, right? We got to analyze how this brand is is currently being perceived. And then at the same time, we've got to go in and say, all right, well, given what we know about their goals, given what we now understand of the context, how does this brand need to be perceived in order for this behavior change to happen? And here, behavioral science um, and a whole bunch of other social sciences like semiotics, which I love. Mwah. Shout out to Rachel Laws. Excuse me, Dr. Rachel Laws, um, one of the founders of commercial semiotics and my mentor. Um, right. Like these, these traditions have a lot to say about connecting impressions that people have to behavior change. Right. And so that's where things can get really fruitful and really interesting. So once we understand how they need to be perceived, then it's really all about impression management at that point, right? Like we know how they need to be perceived. Cool. We just need to manage that over time. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's kind of the first half, maybe, mm-hmm. of, of um, visibility engineering. Just this idea of impressions are important. And we can study them from a scientific perspective and leverage them to our advantage, right? Then go ahead if you have questions. Or yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I, I do. So I, I'm just thinking about this, like in terms of how, you know, a brand is perceived or how a person is perceived uh, in the public eye. I, and it's funny because I, I think about this from a couple of contexts. One was, I don't know if you signed in matchmaking, my ridiculous reality TV show appearance, but um, <laughs> but I, I thought a lot about sort of the way that all played out, particularly in terms of, you know, being a public figure and, you know, why I was very mindful of how I came across was like, like I already have an audience, like everything I say here is going to be amplified no matter what. You know, and so how I come across is not just a reflection on me, but on every single person that's associated with me, investors, editors, agents, like every single person. And that's the thing when you're in the public eye, like there are consequences to everything that you do in the public eye. Like you have to be mindful about, you know, what you say, what you do, regardless of the fact that stupid celebrities don't understand that. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But, um, the the thing that I'd, I'd wondered about, you know, you talked about this idea of, you know, what is the impression of a brand? And like I think that it made me wonder, like, where is the disconnect between what I think the impression of our brand is versus what people actually think is? And, and how do you mm. find that? What is what is the way to discover that? Because I, I feel like the fear in asking is you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. Yeah. yeah, no, I know. I, I relatable, completely relatable. And I think the thing that um 
studying behavioral and social science has given me the the benefit of um is realizing that it's better to know. In fact, in fact, I think I think it's not even that background so much as my and I don't want to introduce yet another wrinkle into our conversation, but like my my background in in international mediation probably is the thing that actually trained me for this that it is better to know than to not know, right? Because if I don't know about like an extra relevant thing, then mm-hmm. this peace settlement can get made and fall apart like within the year. And that's yeah. that's <laughs> on all of us in the room, right? Like cannot afford to have that happen. And so, so to your question of like, how do you discover what that gap is? Honestly, it's asking, right? Yeah. It is a lot of, and behavioral science is like really good at showing us like how to ask these specific kinds of questions, like what questions to ask, how not to ask them in sort of like a leading way, you know, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really asking, right? Like you want to ask and the things that you're looking for are not necessarily the same thing that you know, most marketers and brand people are taught, right? Like you're not necessarily looking for like demographic details and psychographic details, right? Which I I could go length about why those things frustrate me and why the ideal client avatar is garbage and why niching has been sent from hell to kill me. I could go at length for those things. We do not have time. What I will say is that when you are asking what you are looking for, are motivations, right? Mm -hmm. And motivational drivers in the environment. Those are the things that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, And what else do I say here? So, so the way that you get to that isn't really even by asking the right questions, getting the answers and leaving it there. There is a sort of coding process that happens on the back end where you get the answers that you do from folks. And then you start filtering those answers through what you know about core motivations and motivational drivers that human beings have that we, you know, discovered in the tradition of of psychology and behavioral science and what have you, right? You filter it through those things. And that gets you closer to um the truth of the matter. Because yeah. there's always the there's always the issue of like someone telling you what they think you want to hear. And you know, like all of those sampling issues that happen when mm-hmm. you're trying to do like surveys and that sort of thing. Right. And so having a coding process on the back end that is and by coding for those who are unfamiliar, it's just sort of how you um, you tag and organize the information that you are getting qualitatively often and sometimes quantitatively. So, so that's how you discover the gap. Frankly, yeah. you have somebody who knows how to do that, do that for you. Um, and then you already know the impression that you think you have, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you compare that, those things, then you see the gap. So yeah, I hope that answers that question. No, it does. It like as I'm sitting here talking to you, my first thought was, okay, we got about a thousand reviews in iTunes, and literally after you get this phone, I, I, I like call, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to dump this into ChatGPT and literally yeah. take whatever you just said 
and be like, all right, do exactly what she just said with all these reviews. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be my first instinct. But that's because yeah. I think like that, you know, like my, my <laughs> first instinct is, okay, how do I systematize this? Yeah, but, absolutely. And do so it and I let can, me know how it goes. Yeah, we, we, I'll, I'll show you how to do it when we get done here, but um, I think it'll blow <laughs> your mind. But um, so I, I guess then, you know, like once that is done, like what goes from there is like, are we talking about, okay, we're changing the copy on a website, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like then, you know, what is the actual execution look like from there? Yeah. Yeah. So I found that it often depends on who is doing this work, but I'll just yeah. speak for myself, um, for me and my firm. Um, sorry, in my head, I went like, for me and my house, I need to chill. I'm so sorry. Um, I, um, the way that I do this with my clients, so this, this obscure content creator was my client. What we are doing is we are putting together something that I call, um, visibility HQ. You know, it's really just a visibility management studio or center type thing. Right. And the idea is that you have, how do I, how do I express this? The idea is that you ensure that every element of the impression that you have just discovered that you need to engineer, right? Like now you have the plan for closing the gap between what you thought and what's actually happening, right? Every element that needs to be at play in order to close that gap, every and en- like engineering move that you need to make, you need to have those things documented somewhere flexibly. Almost, this is kind of like the the compass versus a, a a map type thing, right? Where anybody, any collaborator, whether or not they are an employee, whether or not they're somebody that you're going to be, um, I don't know, doing a, a co-sponsored thing with, right? Anybody can come in, see this and be like, cool, I know what to do. Um, and so I know that that's getting like a little bit more vague, but fully, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if I shared my screen and showed you what this looked like, you would understand why it's so difficult to speak, to speak about most, most, I mean, every single person I've shown uh, the visibility HQ to has been like, I, uh, okay, uh, wow (laughs) about it. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so that's, I think that's sort of the first, the first thing, right? Like it. There has to be a single source of truth and it has to be flexible enough to be able to adjust regardless of the context around you, right? And that's the thing. That's the lens that behavioral science gives you, right? Because like if the context changes and suddenly everything falls to pieces, that's not security. That's just stability for a time, right? Like you want stability across time. And so that's the thing that's really key about Mm -hmm making sure that you document it in a way that is flexible like that. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate that you have brought up context over and over in this conversation. And I think mm-hmm. that is the most overlooked aspect of people following prescriptive advice. It, yeah. it, like I started writing this book called Everybody is Full of Shit, Including Me. Uh, <laughs> and it was basically a, about context and why context basically renders virtually all prescriptive advice ineffective. Um okay. Yeah, you know, and that I appreciate so much because I feel like people are so context blind yeah. when they follow advice. They like, I had somebody, you know, I've had people who was like, Oh, how do you grow a podcast? I'm like, How the hell do I know? I started 15 years ago. I don't know anything about growing a podcast. Like, I won't teach you podcasting courses. I'm like, I don't know what to teach you. Like, I'm like, This was all very organic. I don't have like a distilled strategy in any way at all. 
And even if I did, it wouldn't work because of the fact that the context is so different. Exactly. Exactly this. Exactly this. And this is why when when folks do ask me, and I get this question, I get questions like this a lot, like, okay, but like, what do I do? Like, how do I do it? I'm like, look, honestly, we have to build you your own compass, right? So that like, you can do it yourself, right? Like it, you asking me what to do, like, is not going to, the answer I give you is not going to be helpful unless I have all the context and I can build you a tool that lets you navigate the various kinds of contexts that we know exist out there, right? Yeah. Like, and this is going to be different for every brand. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that's like bananas to me that it's the ability to work across contexts that's so valuable that like we completely <laughs> lost or pretend isn't there until like the next giant context shift happens and suddenly everything breaks. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's why like when folks ask me questions, I'm just sort of like, I can answer this general generally, but like what you really need is like a, a compass that will let you navigate your, your own specific context and it needs to be calibrated to you. Um, and I can't give you calibrated advice or calibrated guidance or a calibrated heading unless I have a better understanding of the context. Um, and so, so, so yeah. And like, dude, we haven't even gotten to like the influence piece here and like the behavioral, like, oh, there's such fun. There's so many fun things on the other side of impression management, even though I know like this is the, this is the part that most people are like interested in, like they're mm-hmm. interested in, okay, like how do I make, <laughs> how do I, how do I know what colors are going to convey the impression that I want? Right. And like, this is like super basic stuff. I'm like, yes, we can do that. that is something that can be done. Semiotics at its most base level can do that. It can do much more, but like at its most base level, yes, it can do that. But also, <laughs> What do you do once you have the impression that you need, right? And that's when influence management comes in, right? And that's the part that like I love and I'm constant, constantly reading new interesting things about. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should do a part two. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I think so. Especially since I think one of your guests, Damon Santola, I think you had Damon on your show. And yeah. I, I love, love that this book. man. I first of all, I love this man. I love his book. I've read all of his research. He has no idea who I am. Well, okay, he might because he answered one of my emails and he was very kind about it. But um, fully probably has no idea who I am. And like so much of the work that I do on the influence management side of my of visibility engineering, essentially, yeah. is based on what we now know because of network science and a lot mm-hmm. of the cutting edge stuff that David has done. Yeah, just, I, you know, like, I wrote a guide oh, on how to build an audience in 2021 based entirely on the principles from that book. Could you send that to me? Because yeah. I love that so much. Um, yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'll send it to you. If, yeah, I have it. Well, let's do this. I, I think it, it's no no brainer. And people probably hear like, well, what the hell is the influence part? So we'll do a part two. Um, okay. So let we'll stop here. And uh, yeah. So, you know, tune in for part two of the conversation and mm-hmm. uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.